All right, good morning, everybody. So <clears throat> there's a critique I've heard occasionally of the American church that says the church doesn't talk about sin anymore. Has anyone heard this critique? Uh, back in 2011, an article... Oh, is this working? <laughs> Anyway, back in 2011, an article was published in Relevant Magazine by a guy named Scott McKnight, who is a professor of biblical studies at North Park University, a Christian school. And the title of the article was, Why Doesn't Anybody Talk About Sin? And he said this, As a biblical studies professor, I teach a class called Jesus of Nazareth. At the end of each class, we recite the Lord's Prayer together. I do this with my students because the Lord's Prayer sums up the entire teaching ministry of Jesus and because the word sin is found in it. Though Matthew's version normally uses the word transgression and forgive us our transgressions, Luke's version has the word sins. I ask my students to import that word into Matthew's version because I feel they need to hear the word sin over and over. Two student conversations represent the responses I usually get. One student told me he had almost never heard of sin in any church service. A second student told me she was offended that I would import the word sin into the Lord's Prayer because it was negative and harmful. And what McKnight argues is that in the American church, we're experiencing what you might call an overcorrection over uh, to the legalism in the past in the church. Um, in the past, uh, the recent past in America, the church had a reputation for talking a lot about sin and not very much about grace. And what McKnight article, what he, what he argues in this article is that the pendulum has swung very far in the other direction. And now we talk a lot about grace, which is good, but we neglect to talk about sin. And McKnight argues that this unwillingness to talk about sin is leading to a lack of concern for holy living among Christians in the church. And he says this leads to acceptance of sin, ignorance of its impact, and then weakened relationships with God, with people, and with the world. Now, I don't know if that rings true with your experience of the church, but regardless of whether or not we agree with McKnight's assessment of the church, I think we should be able to agree that the church does need to talk about sin, right? Because the Bible talks about sin. And the Bible doesn't say we should just stop caring about sin because God is forgiving. It does say that God is forgiving. And in fact, it says that there is no sin so great that Christ's blood doesn't have the power to cover it. But it also tells us to turn from sin, right? It tells us to actively work to rid sin from our lives. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Don't make peace with it. 
right? Don't just say, oh, well, God forgives me, right? Throw it off. Wrestle out of the web. Cut the net and swim away. But if we're going to do that, we have to actually talk about sin in the church. So we are starting a new sermon series today called Seven Deadly Sins, Fighting Freedom from Our Worst Impulses. And uh, now you may have heard of this concept of the seven deadly sins before, especially if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And the seven deadly sins, it's important to recognize, they don't come strictly from the Bible. There's no place in the Bible where it says, here are the seven deadly sins. This is a human attempt at classification. Um, And what the seven deadly sins are supposed to be are classification of the impulses that lead to all the other kinds of sins that we commit. They're kind of the, the root sins that underlie all of our other sins. You know, here's the list of them here. Pride, greed, sloth, gluttony, envy, lust, wrath. And you might be thinking, well, there's a lot of sins that aren't on that list that are really bad, like murder and stealing and lying. Well, why aren't they there? Well, like I said, because these are the sins that are supposed to lead to the other ones. So you don't usually murder somebody unless you're very wrathful first, right? And you don't usually steal unless you are some combination of greedy and envious and maybe gluttonous, right? So that's the idea behind this this classification of sins. And I I believe it was something that started to to develop in the 300s among some monks, and then it eventually worked its way into Catholic doctrine, and now we we call them the seven deadly sins today. Um, Now, whether or not this is a, a great classification or not, whether or not the monks got it right, we could debate, but one thing is for sure, which is that the Bible warns us against all of these sins. Right? So if we're going to talk about disentangling ourselves from the sin that hinders us, this is a very good place to start. So as we're going through this list in the coming weeks, what we're going to do each week is we're going to be asking a couple questions. We're going to be asking, how does this sin entangle us, this particular sin? And number two, how can we find freedom from this sin? So sound good? That's where we're headed. All right. Well, this week, we are going to be starting off with the sin of envy. Uh, What is envy? Well, I heard a story recently from Jewish folklore that I think describes it very well. Uh, The story goes, once there was a shopkeeper who was very envious of a rival shopkeeper down the street. And one day, an angel came to the shopkeeper and said, I will give you any wish that you want. I will grant any wish that you ask. And so the shopkeeper was really excited. But then he said, there's one condition. Your rival will get double whatever you ask for. And so the man's face fell. Oh, no. So he thought about it for a while. And then he said, all right, fine. Make me blind in one eye. Now that's envy at its nastiest, right? It's, it's not just a desire to have something that somebody else has, although that's part of it. It's a resentment towards someone for having something that you don't have, right? 
and it's a desire to see it taken from them. It's, it's not just a, de a desire to have your neighbor's car, it's a desire for a tree to fall on their car in the next storm. That's envy. Hating someone because you perceive them as richer or better looking or more fortunate or more successful than you are. Now, I doubt any of us really need to be convinced of, of this, but the Bible talks a lot about envy and not in positive terms. Uh, envy is described as part of a lifestyle of sin. Uh, in Paul's light, letter to Titus, he says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And then Galatians 5.19 says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and there it is, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Right next to uh, drunkenness and orgies. It's all part of the lifestyle of sin. If there was a Boy Scout program for learning the lifestyle of sin, envy would be one of the best merit badges you could get. And both of these passages are making it very clear that envy is the opposite of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? It's the fruit of the sinful nature. In fact, there are at least six direct warnings in the New Testament uh, for us to avoid envy. And 1 Peter 2.1 commands us, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, in addition to these direct warnings that the Bible gives us, there's also some very powerful examples of the destructive nature of envy in the Bible. And one of them happens very early on, actually. Uh, second generation of humanity, the story of Cain and Abel. You might remember that we talked about this when we did our Genesis series about a year ago now. Um, but in case you don't remember, uh, Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. So, yes, yeah, second generation of, of humanity. And as the story goes, both of them offered sacrifices to God. And God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice. He liked Abel's sacrifice more than Cain's. And it's not entirely sure why that is. I have two theories about that. One, because I don't think that, Abel, that Cain brought the best that he had to offer. It's, it emphasizes that Abel uh, brought the best that he had to offer, but with Cain, it doesn't necessarily uh, say that. And uh, not only that, but Cain, I think, did not bring his sacrifice with the right attitude. The most important thing that we offer to God is a broken, contrite heart. And we know that Cain did not bring that kind of heart to his sacrifice because of what Cain does next. Um, Cain is filled with envy when he realizes that his brother's sacrifice is looked upon with favor, more so than his. And he is so filled with, en with envy that he ends up killing his brother. Um, and there's this, this moment where envy is starting to consume Cain, and God warns him. God says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. In other words, Cain, this envy that you're feeling, 
This sin of envy, it is like a crouching predatory animal that is about to pounce on you, and when it does, you are going to completely lose control of your actions. And that's what envy can be like in our own lives. It is a crouching animal ready to pounce on us and cause us to lose control of our actions. And he's saying, he's saying, Cain, don't let the animal pounce on you, okay? Rather than letting it control you, you have to master this impulse of envy. But of course, Cain doesn't. He goes into a fierce rage and he ends up killing his brother. So that is how powerful envy can be. Envy is the soil from which humanity's first murder grows. But I think there's actually an even better example of the destructive power of envy in the Bible. And that is the example of the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders in Israel when Jesus walked the earth. These were the people who were supposed to be striving for holiness. The examples of what pure religion looked like to the rest of Israel. These were supposed to be the people who were most familiar with the prophecies about the Messiah and the people who were most looking forward to the Messiah's arrival. But when God in the flesh came to earth, they rejected him. And why did they reject him? Because of envy. Right? The Pharisees wanted people to look up to them as holy as wise men of God. They wanted people to admire them for their spiritual superiority. But then this guy, Jesus, comes along and he completely offends that desire because he critiques them, right? He critiques them for being motivated by love of money and love of power and love of reputation rather than love of God and love of neighbor. And as Jesus ministered, the Pharisees watched as the, the crowds would be just enchanted by him. And, and they watched as he demonstrated power and authority from God in his teaching and in his, in his miracles. And they were deeply, deeply envious. They hated him. They resented him because they wanted what Jesus had. Sin was crouching at their door. But like Cain, they did not master it. They let the sin of envy pounce on them and completely gain control of them. And like Cain, they killed the one whom they envied. They handed Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pilate, to be crucified. And the Bible actually tells us that Pilate knew what was up. He knew what was motivating the Pharisees. Because it says in Matthew 27, 18, for he knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. So envy was so powerful that it blinded the Pharisees and they sent God incarnate to death. It so blinded them that when the Messiah they had been waiting for finally showed up, they crucified him, right? That is the destructive power of envy. So let's talk a little bit about how envy entangles us. Uh, remember that verse, Titus 3.3, it said, We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Any community where envy is common is a community where people are hating and being hated. Right? That's just, I mean, it's pretty self-evident, but it, it, it needs to be said. People hate others because they have what they want and they don't have it. And then when they express that hate, the people who have what they want hate them back. Right? Any community that is filled with envy is a community filled with hate. So number one, envy causes hate. And then James 3.16 also warns us, 
For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Envy causes chaos. Any church where envy is rampant is going to be constantly in disorder. And the leaders of that church, it's going to be like fires are starting all the time that are caused by envy, and they're always trying to stamp them out. Uh, Envy also leads to gossip. That's number three if you're taking notes. Uh, When you're envious of somebody, you resent them, so you're much more likely to say bad things about them, whether they're true or not. That's what the Pharisees did, right? They envied Jesus, and so they gossiped about him. They said that he was a drunkard and a glutton and, and a sinner. They said that his power to do miracles came from the devil. They, they, they resented him, they envied him, and so they gossiped about him. And we do the same thing when we envy. And a final way that envy entangles us is that it keeps us discontent. Right? When you have the envious mindset, you're always focusing on what you don't have rather than what you do have. You're not being thankful for what you have. You're always thinking about, I wish I had that thing. Right? And so envy keeps us discontent. It makes us miserable. So envy causes hate, chaos, gossip, discontent, and sometimes murder. Right? No wonder it's called one of the seven deadly sins. Right? This is not something that we want in our lives. This is something that we want to get rid of. So let's talk about how we can throw off this deadly impulse. How do we find freedom from the sin of envy? Well, I have three three suggestions for us today. I believe that all of these are rooted in Scripture. And if we can really put them into practice, I think it will go a long way in helping us to be free from this. So number one. One of the first things we need to do is recognize that God made each of us to fulfill unique roles in his kingdom. God made each of us to fulfill unique roles in his kingdom. If we were all the same, there would be no reason to envy, right? If we all had the same resources, the same talents and abilities, the same amount of wealth, same level of physical attractiveness, same marital status, same spouses, same career and ages and height and weight and wardrobe, then there would be no reason for envy. But we don't, right? We're all all different. Now, some of those differences are due to injustice and unfairness in the world. But a lot of those differences are part of God's design. They're the way that God wants it to be. The Bible tells us that God gives us different gifts and abilities and he's, because he's made it so that we have particular roles to fulfill in his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how uh, God gives us in different ways in order to fulfill different roles. And he compares the church to a body. Is this long analogy comparing the church to a body. And at one point he says, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So one of the problems that Paul is addressing in the church right here through this analogy is the problem of envy, right? Because in the church, uh, people were feeling envious of each other because they wanted to have the spiritual gifts that other people had. In other words, they wanted to have the role 
in the church that other people had. And what Paul says here essentially is, don't you realize that that's never going to work? Right? The whole body can't be an ear. If everyone is an ear, there is no body of Christ. There's just a big ear. And so stop wanting to be an ear and be whatever part of the body that God made you to be. Do you realize that you are capable of bringing glory to God in a way that no other person is? Have you ever thought about that? That's true. Because God made you and your circumstances unique. There's nobody else that's quite like you. And he made you to fulfill a role in his plan that nobody else can fulfill because nobody else is quite like you. You know, when we believe that, when we really believe that, it kills envy. Because, yeah, we might not be as good-looking or as wealthy or as famous or talented as somebody else, but that stuff doesn't really matter. What really matters is playing a role in God's plan of redemption for the world. I'm going to say that again because I think that's really important. What really matters is playing a role in God's plan of redemption for the world. That's what really matters. And when it comes to what really matters, God has a unique role for each of us to play in that plan. Now, for a few people in the church, that role is very public and very noticeable, like the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham. But for most of us, our role is nowhere near as public, as public or as noticeable as that. But that's okay. Right? We don't need to envy the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham. We should admire them, but we don't need to envy them because God has a role for each of us to play in his plan of redemption as well. And believe it or not, it is a role that the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham could not fill. Right? It is a role that only you and you alone can fulfill because God has made you specifically for that. So that is one way to start to get rid of envy. Recognize that God has made each of us to fulfill unique roles in his kingdom. A second thing that we need to do is choose not to focus on comparison. Choose not to focus on comparison. At the root of envy is this tendency to always compare ourselves to other people. And that is a recipe for discontent because as we established earlier, people are different, which means that there will always be people who have things or qualities that you want to have but you don't have. Uh, God did not design us to all be the same. And so if we focus on comparison, we're going to feel discontent and there are going to be times where that will lead to envy, right? Uh, you might remember that a few weeks ago when we were talking about anxiety, I talked about how there's this correlation between high social media use and depression, right? Uh, well, research indicates that one of the reasons for that is because social media invites us to compare ourselves all the time to everybody else. And it gives us opportunity to compare ourselves to other people to degrees that pre previous generations never had the opportunity. And social media is especially likely to breed these feelings of discontent because 
The pictures that people post are the best pictures that they, they can find, right? The pictures that make them look the most attractive, the most adventurous, like their lives are the most interesting and like they eat the best food, right? And so when we spend a lot of time on social media, it invites us to compare ourselves not just to other people, but to the best of other people's lives. And that can leave us feeling discontent, depressed, and often envious. And what we need to do is make a conscious effort not to judge our success in comparison to other people. Okay, we, don't, we can't judge our success in comparison to other people. We have to judge our success by whether we are running the race that God has laid for us to the best of our ability. There's a great little passage in Galatians that I think is relevant here. Uh, Paul writes, Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. I really like the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase of the Bible, uh, the message. He says, Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. This actually reminds me of a scene from the movie Elf. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you really should remedy that this holiday season. <laughs> Elf is the story of a human named Buddy, played by Will Ferrell, uh, who grows up among elves at the North Pole. And Buddy doesn't know that he's a human being. He thinks he's an elf, but he lacks certain elf qualities. And there's one scene where he's in the workshop uh, making toys, and one of the overseer elves asks him how many etch-a-sketches he's made uh, that day. And Buddy grimaces, and, and he says, I'm going to be a little short on today's quota. I made uh, 85? And the whole workshop falls silent. And then the overseer says, uh, well, that puts you 915 off the pace. And of course, Buddy feels terrible, but the reason he feels bad isn't because he hasn't put forth his best effort. I mean, when I was watching the movie the first time, I remember him saying 85, and I was like, wow, holy moly, 85 Etch-a-Sketches. That's a lot in one day, right? But he feels bad because of comparison. He's, he's a human comparing himself to elves. And elves have a natural aptitude for building etch-a-sketches. <laughs> human beings don't. That's one you should definitely write down. <laughs> you know, but given, given who Buddy is, 85 etch-a-sketches is probably a great accomplishment. And if Buddy the elf were to read this Bible passage, he should hear something like this. Don't compare yourself to the elves, right? Do the best that you can, and if you're doing that, take pride in that, right? And if you eventually get kicked off the Etch-a-Sketch crew and they make you do something else because you're not keeping pace, well, do the best you can at that. And if you're doing the best you can, take pride in that. Don't worry about comparing yourself to others all the time. That's the kind of attitude that we're supposed to have. We measure our success not in comparison to others, but by whether we're doing the best that we can 
with what we have, and we take pride in that. And when we are able to do that, envy starts to die. Finally, uh, one other thing that we can do to find freedom from envy is replace resentment with love. Replace resentment with love. As I've already said, it is inevitable that sometimes we are going to want things that other people have. Right? That's life. Sometimes we're going to wish that we had somebody else's career or their home or their car or their looks or their marriage or their spiritual gifts. That's, that's inevitable. And although that's not good, it's not too big of a deal unless that desire turns to resentment for that person. That's, that's what envy is. That's the essence of it. And what we need to do is when we feel that resentment welling up in our souls, we need to ask God to help us replace that resentment with love. Love and envy are incompatible. In Paul's uh, famous spirit-inspired description of love, 1 Corinthians 13, he specifically says, love does not envy. Right? Love and envy are incompatible. And the reason for that is because love rejoices with others in their blessing. That is part of the essence of love. Rejoices with others in their blessing. But envy resents others for their blessing. You see that? These are not compatible at all. Love feels joy over their neighbor's success, over their job promotion, over their marriage, or the birth of their child, right? But envy feels hatred, feels resentment. Why should you have that instead of me? But Scripture tells us that we have to do the best we can to celebrate each other's blessings rather than resent them. Uh, Romans 13, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. That's a command. Sometimes our feelings don't always line up with that, but it is a command to do this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. That is what love looks like. And I want us to notice that there's important advice in there, both for those of us who are envying and for those of us who are in a position of being envied, right? For those of us who are envying, this tells us that we need to let go of our resentment and celebrate the blessings that other people have, right? It's not easy to do, but with the Holy Spirit, we, it is possible, okay? But as for those of us who are being envied, what we need to do is make sure that we practice this mourning with those who mourn. Sometimes what an envious person really needs in order to start to let go of resentment is, is someone who loves them enough to enter into their pain, right? Someone who loves them enough to sympathize and to recognize how hard it can be not to have that job or that family or their health. Sometimes what they need to help them out of resentment is just someone who loves them enough to mourn with them. So we, we rejoice with those who rejoice. 
We mourn with those who mourn. We choose love over resentment. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we want to be a church that reflects your heart to the world and to each other. And Lord, we recognize that that means sometimes talking about stuff that's hard, talking about sin and, and the ways that it harms us and the need to turn from it. And Lord, I pray that over the next couple weeks, uh, you would help us to uh, really pay attention to your voice as we talk about these sins and to listen to what your spirit is saying about the ways that we may need to turn from our sin, the ways that we may need to throw it off. I pray that in some ways these next seven weeks would be a time of repentance for each one of us, Lord, a healthy time of repentance, not a time of self-hatred, Lord, but of uh, becoming disentangled from the sins that hold us back. Lord, we pray specifically about this sin of envy, Lord. We pray that if any of us is dealing with resentment towards other people for having things that we want, Lord, that you would free us from that. Lord, help us to replace our resentment with love. Help us to recognize that regardless of, of how much stuff somebody else might have that we want, the truth is that there is a role that you have called us to fulfill that only we can fulfill, Lord. And help us to take joy in that, Lord, and to have a healthy pride in that. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that you continually help us to be free um, from all the sin that entangles. In Jesus' name, amen.